and welcome to you all. We're going to jump right into Revelation chapter 19 because we have a context here and at the end of Revelation that will help us understand what's going on in David's life as we get back into 2 Samuel. All right, Revelation 19. We're going to begin in verse... I'm going to start bringing my glasses. I'm getting old. Verse 9. Then he said to me... This is an angel talking to the Apostle John. Then he said to me, write... Blessed are those who were called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Are you called to this dinner? Is it dinner or supper, by the way? Depends on who raised you, right? But look at the definition. There's, there's a happiness. There is a joy. The soul that is called to this feast, to this marriage supper of the Lamb. There's, there's a... There's a you're fortunate. Again, every single one of us this morning, we just listened to the presentation of multiple aspects of the gospel. You've been called to this feast. And the access that we have to this feast is simply by believing and trusting in who Jesus is. Hold on to that because it's important. And he said to me, these are the true sayings, the true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. If you underline in your Bible, highlight whatever you do, this should be circled, memorized. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We're going to get into a section in 2 Samuel this morning that it's, it's just... It's recounting historical facts. But when you look at it for a foretelling prophetic voice, we're going to watch David's life image this scene that we're going to read through. But whether you're reading in Genesis or Leviticus or Jeremiah or Matthew or Ephesians or Revelation, wherever you are in the Word of God, let this be the banner over your reading. The words that you are reading are to express the witness the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus and Jesus alone. You are not, we are not to press into the teachings of a man, of a woman, of a denomination, of a culture, of a mother, of a father, of a brother. We have a teacher. We are told through faith in Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and he is the only teacher that we need. Now, as I'm sitting here teaching, we have multiple voices into our life that help us understand what does this mean? What's the context? What's the history? What's Jesus expressing? But I want to invite you and I want to encourage you to be thinkers and discerners and reasoners and considerers when it comes to the Word of God. Julie and I watched uh, on Netflix, there's a, a documentary on David Koresh. Have you got anybody watched it? I encourage you to watch it if you, know, if you don't know anything about it. It's worth watching, and who cares about the political side of things? You listen to the testimonies of people's lives who still believe the lies of a man, a man who came to, claimed to be Jesus in the flesh, a man who claimed to be God, and people died believing him. That's spiritual abuse. That is spiritual control. 
You have individuals who are legitimately yearning and seeking to know why do I exist? Who is the God who created me? What are the answers? What is truth? And so many human beings get wrapped up into the commandments of men and lies, which ultimately lead people away from the Lord. But we hold on to these truths in God's word. If you legitimately seek God, even as you're listening to other teachers explain what the word of God says, if you are seeking God in truth, he will make himself known to you. But it requires an effort. Studying the word of God requires an effort. It requires thinking. What does that mean? What does that say? Having the courage to say, I don't know. I don't get it. I need to wait for some more information. Some things you learn later on in life. And other things, there are just outstanding questions that we have into the nature and character of God. We're sitting in prophecy in this moment right here. There's a whole bunch of questions when it comes to what do the signs of the times mean? What's it, what does it look like right before Jesus returns? We have all these kind of definitions and different uh, doctrines to help us to understand and get a grasp of what's going on. But ultimately, are we holding on to a doctrine and a systematic theology, or are we holding on to Jesus and Jesus alone? If I ever communicate me, if I ever communicate a system of theology, please have the courage and the boldness and the freedom to confront me and correct me. And if I don't stand corrected, then please leave. Does that make sense? Don't ever be gripped by religion. Don't ever be gripped by a man. Don't ever be gripped by a woman. Let Jesus hold you and keep you and lead you and love you and encourage you because the testimony of these words, the spirit, the breath, it's all about Jesus. Now listen to the conveyance of future Jesus coming. Now I saw Heaven opened, and behold, see it, there's a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Hold on to that line, because David is going to image that sentence. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns. His robe was dipped in blood, well, sorry, he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And hold on to that phrase, striking the nations. We're going to watch David do that in Second Samuel. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat their fle uh, the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, who is the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, 
Their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Pretty gross, yeah? The day of the Lord, there's a, there's a contrast depending on a soul's position with God. There is the contrast of the individual who is blessed because they have been called to and invited and received that invitation to the marriage supper of the land, Lamb, which is a, an incredible feast that we will all participate in. In this image of Jesus coming back on a horse, the host that is with him are all believers, all time, all history, returning with Jesus to rule and reign for the thousand years that chapter 20 talks about. In 21 and 22, you have the restoration of all things. What was described in the beginning, what was lost in the beginning of Genesis, here the bookend is the restoration of all things. And then the contrast between that marriage supper of the Lamb here you have this feast of God, which is for the birds of the air, because it's an expression of the judgment that is coming. So the position, you can be for God and with him, or you can be against God and suffer the consequences of it. There is no in-between road. Does that make sense? Is that uncomfortable? In some ways, yeah, it is. Because my heart grieves for anybody that's shaking their fist at God. We're talking about this morning that a more, a more difficult heart to deal with is the heart that just doesn't care. You know, we'll sit there and listen to you and not fight back and not discuss and not reason, but just, just doesn't care, complacent. Have a deep-seated, rooted care and pursuit and hunger and thirst for who your creator is, who he has created you to be, who he has defined you to be, his love for you, his care for you, his attention for you. May you just be enamored and in awe with your creator, day by day, moment by moment. Does that sound like a good life to live? But our lives have hills and valleys, yeah? This is what we're going to do. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8. We are going to read through a chapter in 2 Samuel that feels almost like a social media feed of David's life. It's going to be a snapshot after snapshot of good things, of victories. We don't get any of the nitty-gritty. We don't get any of the details of the battles. We don't get the, the back and forth of winning and losing, none of that emotion. Everything that's expressed in this chapter, it's all the good stuff. And here's why. So earlier on in the immediate context, David has been finally established and anointed as king of the southern and nor northern tribes of Israel. So the nation is now one under the singular king. David has conquered Jerusalem, so that's the place where God says he's going to place his name and where his name is to be declared to all the nations is from this position of Jerusalem. What we just read in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, he comes back and he steps foot on Mount, the Mount of Olives, which is just on the east side of Jerusalem. 
That's where he is going to rule and reign from. That's the image that's being provided in David's life is this ultimate king. We've sat in the scene of him bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Finally, the, this, this artifact that is to represent the presence of God in the midst of the people. You have David sitting in his house that we covered last week where he is looking at his house as cedar and God's house as a tent and he wants to build God a house. And then we sat in the promises last week that God gave to David. David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And all of the different promises that he gave to David in chapter 7. Now as we move into chapter 8, we're watching God fulfill the promises of chapter 7. David is going to pursue war and strike the enemies all around the nation of Israel. And he's going to be victorious in every single one of those moments. God fulfilling the promise that I am going to cut off all of your enemies. At the same time, we're going to be told today that David made his name great. And it's not he himself who is making his name great and lifting up his name. It's God fulfilling his promise to give David a great name that we saw last week. But as we sit in the social media feed, so to say, of 2 Samuel 8, it's going to be all the good stuff. It's not going to be the agitation of the heart. So where we're going to end today is in Psalm 60, and he gives us some background of David's heart that gives the real life behind the scenes. It's not just what's going on on the surface, but here's a, a snapshot of David's struggle with God. Where are you? We need you. You've promised us. I will not hope in man, but I will hope in God because he is the one who cuts off all of my enemies. And a lot of this is familiar subject matter that we've been covering over the past weeks. All right, here we go, 2 Samuel 8. It says, after this, it came to pass. So in other words, it's in, in, the, in the course of time. So this chapter is not seen as perfectly chronological in David's life, but it's a snapshot of God giving to David as king all of the land that he promised to Abraham. So listen to this. So it came to pass that David attacked, he struck. Same language that when Jesus comes, he's going to strike with the word, the sword of his mouth, not with a physical sword. Here David is striking with the physical sword, but it's, it's to image the future promised anointed king of all humanity. David struck the Philistines. The Philistines are to the west of Jerusalem. It says he subdued. He forced them to submit, and he humiliated them in warfare. David struck the Philistines and subdued them. David took Metheg Amah, which that, it's a, it's a, an idiom, uh, just a sentence, the two words means it's the bridle of the mother city. So what it, the, it's Gath is what it's in reference to. So if you remember the major five city-states of the Philistines, what's being said here is David goes to the west and he, he uh, conquers Gath and sets up his authority there in Gath. And we watch the Gittites later on in David's life um, they are now subdued and under his authority. So he takes Gath from the hand of the Philistines. So once he deals with the Philistines in the west, he turns in verse 2 and goes to the east. 
Then it says he defeated. It's the same word for attacked. He struck Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. And with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. How do you like David? Told you, repetitiously, there's a lot of things about David's life. This is a different culture. This is a different time. This would never be accepted today, but look at the imagery. As Israel comes into Moab and goes to war for whatever reason, we don't have the specifics, but when they win the battle, as they are dealing with the prisoners of war, they have a rope of a certain length. They measure off two lengths of that rope and execute every single one of those individuals, another length of that rope, and let them go free. Another two lengths of that rope, execute those individuals, another single length of that rope, let them go free. Let them go free to go and work the land and to bring in tribute. It is a way to deal with uh, crushing this army so that they will not continue to oppress the nation of Israel absolutely vicious, absolutely necessary in his time. But as we sit and does David image for us Jesus when he returns and subdues his enemies, yes or no? What do you think? It's a hard image to sit in. But we were just told in Revelation, Jesus is the one that is treading, pressing down the winepress of God's wrath. God is holy, and he is good, and he is loving, and he is kind, and he is compassionate, and he will have nothing to do with sin, and has done everything to remove sin from humanity by sending his son to die for our sins. So those who are for him are in that one line where your life is preserved and saved as a subdued servant. We're going to get into this imagery. There are subdued servants that are servants by force, humiliated and forced into that position. And then there's people like you and me that raise their hand and say, Jesus, I surrender to you. You are my king. I choose to humble myself before you and trust you and hope in you. But the imagery of this line, that one line, one-third is preserved, two-thirds are struck down. Difficult. Verse 3, David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also David hamstrung all the chariot horses except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. So this is the scene. Zoba is to the north of modern-day Israel. It would be in modern-day Syria. These are a variety of Aramean, uh, you know, in their, in their ancestry, just different small kingdoms in that area historically. So Zoba is to the north. We don't know if the text is saying Hadadezer is going further north to the river Euphrates to recover, to take back territory that was already his, 
or in, in 1 Chronicles 18, which mirrors this passage, it uses the language that he's going up to set up a monument, set up a pillar, again, establish authority. And we don't know if it's talking about Hadadezer or if it's talking about David. It seems to be talking about Hadadezer, that he is going to Euphrates, whatever reason David is pursuing him and conquers him, and that becomes... Uh, land that is now under the authority of David as king, again, fulfilling the promise to Abraham that the nation of Israel, the land would stretch from the Euphrates River down to the Nile River in Egypt. But when David does this, when he wins this battle, it says he hamstrings, literally he tears out by the roots these horses. Part of this is seen as one, it's obedience to Deuteronomy 17, that the king of Israel is not to consolidate and amass military power to himself. He's not to gather horses. So that's one idea. Two, Israel is very rugged in its terrain. Horses aren't super useful in military equipment for the nation of Israel. They were for the Philistines that are in the plain area. But Israel doesn't have a way to care for all these animals. So the just like they killed people in Moab to uh, prevent that military from rising up against Israel in the immediate time. They're doing the exact same thing with the, this military, not personnel, but um, equipment, which is what a horse is, and executing that equipment, keeping this kingdom down. In verse Five, we are told when the Syrians, some of your translations would say Arameans, that's what the Hebrew is. So again, the Syrians, it's modern day Aram, A-R-A-M, uh, are the descendants of this area. So the Syrians of Damascus, they come to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah. David killed, again, that word for strike, killed 22,000 of the Syrians. And David put garrisons, so this is, a, this is a pillar, this is a, um, you know, a military facility to establish an overseer, a governor. All of this is dealing with the economics, making sure that these other uh, militaries stay in line and do not raise up. David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. This is the first time it's said in this chapter, it's going to come up again. But here's the emphasis, here's the stamp over David's life. This is God fulfilling the promises that he just gave to David in chapter 7. So here is the Lord preserving, he is helping, he is the one who is causing David to be victorious wherever he goes. These are, these are major snapshots of military accomplishments. Since the time of Judges, we have watched the Philistines harass the nation of Israel for over 400 years, repetitiously. And now we're told that here the anointed king is the one who finally subdues this nation of enemies on the west. Moab and Ammon on the east side of the Jordan. They are the descendants of Lot. They have historically been adversaries to the nation of Israel. Here God gives David the victory and they're now subdued. As you turn to the north, here's the Syrians and the Arameans and all these other groups 
And this is a, this is a trade highway between Egypt and, you know, where modern-day Iraq and Turkey. Um, so he's controlling the supply lines. He's controlling the military paths. He's doing everything that he can do to secure his borders underneath the authority of God, underneath the leading of God, underneath the power of God. So in verse, looks like seven, David took the shields of gold that belonged to the servants of Hadadezer. These are some trophies, valuable trophies, and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. And as we start looking in the, uh, the material wealth that David is collecting and bringing, 1 Chronicles 18 tells us specifically with this bronze that this is what uh, Solomon used to build multiple things for the temple. So we're watching David collect the resources necessary for the promise that his son was going to build God a house. Verse 9, when Toy king of Hamath, same area in Syria, heard that David defeated all the army of Hadadezer. Then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. And it says, King David dedicated, this is Things that were common are now being removed from common use and are being dedicated, consecrated as holy to the Lord and to the Lord alone. And again, this is an image of what God has done in our own souls through faith in Christ. We were common, we were just like everybody else, and he has caused us to be holy, dedicated, and set apart to him. David, again, is being obedient to Deuteronomy 17. Not only was a king not to amass horses, the king was not to amass a great amount of material wealth to himself. And again, we're going to watch Sam, uh, Solomon later on be disobedient to that and all the repercussions in his life. King David dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, subjugated them from Syria to the north, Moab to the east, from the pe uh, people of Ammon, uh, Moab's southeast, Moab's, uh, Ammon is north of Moab, from the Philistines on the west, from Amalek towards uh, the southwest, towards Egypt, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. Verse 13, and David made himself a name. Again, God is the one who is doing it. David is doing what he is being directed to do, what a king of Israel is supposed to do, taking the people out to war to provide security and bringing the people back safely. David is making a name for himself underneath the authority of the Almighty God. When he returned from killing, again, that word, when he returned from striking 18,000 Syrians, more than likely, it's uh, Edomites. Uh, Edom is the one that's mentioned in First Chronicles. And then here, in reference to the Valley of Salt, that's south side of the Dead Sea. 
So again, most believe that that's an error, transcribe error in regards to the Syrians. So probably Edomites, verse 14 helps give us that definition. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. What do you think of David? What do you think of the snapshot? It's really, it's just, it's just, it's like a news feed. Here's a successful battle. Here's a successful battle. Here's a successful battle. Here's a successful battle. God is the one that's giving the victory. Here's all the spoil and the blessings and the material possessions that God has given to David in that victory. And what does David do with it? Does he hold on to it for himself and build his own kingdom? No, he hands it over to the Lord and says, Lord, you build your kingdom. It's an incredible snapshot, but it's a snapshot of just all the... It's a snapshot of all the victory, God providing the victories, but it's not the detail of the nitty-gritty daily life that is going on. This isn't like one weekend, Joab and the boys are going up and taking on the Syrians, and then the next weekend, well, that was easy, didn't even break a sweat, and, you know, being carried in their little palanquins to the Philistines, let's take care of the Philistines. Well, that was easy, game over. Who's next? Oh, Moab. Who's next? Oh, the Amalekites and the Edomites. It's not that fast. This is over an extended period of time. And again, this is God is providing to his children the rest that he promised. The idea of subduing, there is a forcing of it, and there's that humiliation of it. At the other side, the positive aspect of being a subdued servant of God is being one who is at peace. He is the one who has brought peace into my soul because I'm no longer at war with myself. I'm no longer at war with the enemy. I'm no longer at war with this world. Jesus is my general. And the victories that I have, the wrestlings that I need to process through, he's right there to walk alongside of me and give me the discernment, the wisdom, the knowledge, the actions, the behaviors, whatever I need to do to move forward in the work that he's given me to do, it is to be absolute peace and tranquility. That's why the snapshot of this chapter is easy because God is the one who is giving victory to the obedient, anointed King David. Does it make sense? And do you see the imagery that the word of God is providing for the anointed King David? He is imaging for us. Ultimately, when Christ returns as king, he is going to bring all of those who love him to himself. And then he is going to come and he is going to subdue the nations. The nations are going to be gathered. Not every single human being is going to be gathered to war against Jesus in the end time. Those who are, those who are there, are going to be cut off and executed. And those who remain throughout the world are going to be subdued by the king by force. And Jesus is going to set up garrisons throughout this world where he is going to enforce his peace. He is going to enforce his economy. He is not going to allow other militaries to rise up until when? Until the end of that thousand years, we're told that Satan will be released again. And that once again, humanity... Abiding for generations, a thousand years, underneath 
the perfect king in his perfect peace and his perfect authority, the human heart is going to still look at him and say, no, I don't want you as my king. The, the end of the, it's, it is astonishing to me how rebellious this meat in my chest and this meat in my head can be against my creator. Absolutely astonishing. And this is where our Lord please help me. Fulfill your promises to me to change me and transform me, to give me your heart, to give me your word. I depend upon your grace and your love and your mercy. But a lot of the work that I need to do in this life, in this chapter, some of it, it's, it, if we just have the bullet points and the little pictures of our social media feed, it looks easy. The undercurrent of your daily life, is it easy or is it hard? Is it hard to be a, a man, to be a woman, to be a husband, to be a wife, to be a child, to be an employee, to be a citizen in America? Is this hard, life hard in any way? Or is it all the smiles that we get when we come in the door? Hey, how you doing? I'm great. Let's worship God. And I'll give you my nitty-gritty tomorrow when I'm not feeling so great. It's always great because God is good. Very much so. Verse 15. David reigned over all Israel. He's, he's doing what the king is supposed to do. He is the sovereign, and he is reigning well. Look at this. It says, David administered. This, uh, this word for administered, it's, it's the verb to be or to do. So this is what David be, and this is what David do. I know that's poor grammar, but just have that perspective. Here is his action as king in setting up the order that's necessary to rule over his kingdom. There is order in this morning. As we gather together in the name of Jesus, we have a very specific order. It's not chaos. It's not random. We're looking to the Lord, but we have order. People need to be, everybody needs to fulfill their functions so that we can do what we do together to encourage each other towards Jesus. Amen? You don't want me leading worship because nobody would be here because I sound like a dying cat. That's why we have an awesome worship team. All right, so here's David administering. This is what he's doing. This is who he is in the Lord. It says, David, be David, do judgment and justice to all his people. In Revelation, we read that, uh, well, what does it say that he waged war and righteousness and... It's the sentence I told you to hold on to. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. When you sit in the Old Testament and New Testament, the whole idea of judgment and justice, sorry, justice and righteousness, these are major words that are central to the character of God. These are major words that are central to what he has commanded his followers to be and to do. Recognizing that we can't be righteous and we can't do righteousness apart from our creator. This is something that he has always enabled them to do. David is enabled as anointed and appointed by God to do righteousness and justice in his judgment as king. And it's, it's what we yearn for in our own culture. It's what we yearn for from all leaders. It's what we yearn for as we interact with one another as brothers and sisters. Judgment and justice in grace, in love, in truth to all his people. 
Joab, the son of Zariah. Remember, Zariah is David's sister. So Joab is David's nephew, was over the army. He's over all of the military. General Joab, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, it was recorder. I'll define that in a second. Zadok, the son of Ahitub and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. Uh, Ahimelech is of the lineage of Eli, which has been set aside early in 1 Samuel. Zadok and his descendants are the priests that will follow forward in the rest of the Old Testament. Sariah was the scribe. So the difference between a recorder and a scribe, both of them have the ideas of being a secretary. Um, the scribe, it's the root of the word, has the idea of number, and the recorder has the idea of remembering. So a recorder, you know, today would, we'd press into like our press secretary, for the president of the United States, you know, recording all the facts of the administration, documenting everything that's going on, doing that kind of secretary behavior, where the scribe is seen more as that diplomatic secretary, secretary of state, dealing with foreign entities, seems to be the distinction in those two offices. But Benaiah, this is a guy you want by your side, the son of Jehoiada was over both the Carathites and the Pelathites, and David's sons were chief ministers. All right, Benaiah, this is cool because it's silly and fun. 2 Samuel 23 says, Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel who had done many deeds. Listen to Benaiah. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. So when they went to war with Moab, he got a name for himself. He killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. There's a snapshot for you. Verse 21 says, he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things... Ben, uh, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. So back here in 2 Samuel 8, when it's saying that Benaniah is over the Carathites and the Pelathites, these are mercenaries. David, as king, does not look to his nephew and general, Joab, to provide his personal security. It's just not wise because there's often conflict between general and king because general has a tremendous amount of power in the culture. So David has these separate mercenaries that are his hired hand, that are his personal guard. The Carathites, they're of the same lineage as the, as the Philistines. So David, again, in his relationship with the Philistines that we sat in, some weird military and political relationships, he has now conquered them, he has now subdued them. But over time, we've seen multiple Philistines choose to look to David as king and follow after David's God also, which is the witness that we are to all be. Fascinating snapshot. In the very last sentence there, it says, David's sons were chief ministers. 
Terrible translation because it says David's sons were priests. So, to be a priest in the Old Testament, it is required that you were of the lineage of Aaron, Moses' brother, and then specifically of Aaron's son, Levi. So, in the law of Moses, you look at the Levites, they are, and, sorry, the Levites are, the priests are of Aaron, the Levites are helped, have been given to the priests to do a lot of what would be defined as the sacerdotal duties, the temple duties, the tabernacle duties, the sacrifices. There are many aspects responsibilities that only this class of people can do. So when the Bible says that David's sons were appointed as priests, there's a couple of things that are going on. One, there are many duties that are involved in the worship and ministry and service of God to the people that are not relegated only to this specific group of people. So that's one idea for David's son operating as priest. Two, when God came and delivered the Jews out of Egypt, and he brings them before Mount Sinai, and he is speaking to them, he tells Moses that his people are going to be a kingdom of what? Of priests, men, women. We sit in the New Testament. Every single believer in Jesus Christ is identified as a saint and as a priest. You are a minister and servant of the Lord. Powerful imagery that David's sons are providing and that David is pressing into his kingdom that this you, my children, will be a kingdom of priests. And then at the same time, you have... Um, there's one other thing. I don't remember, so turn to Psalm 60 because we're almost done. Ah, uh, turn to Psalm 60 anyways. The other image is Melchizedek. So does David see himself as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek from chapter 14 of Genesis when you have Melchizedek, king of Salem, defined as the high priest of God? So it seems that David is seeing himself in that position and even in the New Testament, we are told that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So everything that we're sitting in, in chapter 8, G, uh, David is imaging for us the ultimate anointed king, Jesus. All right. Now I told you that we we're going to get into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. We'll slow down. Psalm 60, verse 1. says, Oh God, oh wait. Sorry, we can't read just the verses. We need to read the title because it tells us. To, so it's to the chief musician, set to the lily of testimony, a mictum of David for teaching. It says, when he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah, and Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites from the Valley of Salt. So the title of this psalm is pointing us back to everything that occurred in 2 Samuel 8. So now here's the snapshot of David's heart as he is experiencing those details. Oh God, you've cast us off. So in the midst of all that good, there's a moment, and maybe potential moments, where David is looking to God in prayer, looking to his circumstances, and says, God, you've rejected me. Have you ever felt rejected? 
Have you ever felt like things are not going your way? You ever felt like what you're looking at the enemy, that the enemy is going to win and you are going to lose and you know it? It's David's heart. Oh, God, you've cast us off. You've rejected us. You've broken us down. You've been displeased. Oh, restore us again. Turn us back to you. You hear David's heart? There's something going on in David, in the military, in the culture that has displeased the Lord, and the Lord has brought about consequences as they're going to battle before their enemies, and David knows we have done something to displease you. Turn our hearts back to you. Restore us. You've made the earth tremble. He uses this, you know, cosmic imagery. You've made the earth tremble. You've broken it. Heal its breaches, for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. Do you feel the two different pictures from Samuel chapter 8 to David's expression and prayer and worship of God? It's just, I just, you immediately feel that In so much of our lives, everything can look really good. And then when you get in your private space with God, you really just start pouring out truth. And the Holy Spirit, may he help us to do so. You have given a banner to those who fear you. And listen, it says that it may be displayed because of the truth. The language is that... We may assemble, so the banner is it's like a flag. It's something that God holds up and that we rally underneath that standard, underneath that banner. So the language here is it is a place for us to assemble underneath and for us to face the bow is the language. For us to be in the presence of the army that is standing before us, here's the battle that needs to occur. And David is saying, God, you are the one who has raised up a banner for us to assemble underneath, for us to face the enemy, that we need to go and do your work under your power and under your authority. And then there's a Selah there. Pause in that. Meditate. Think. Ask the questions. God, help me understand. Verse 5, that the reason that you're beloved, God, you love us, that we may be delivered. Save, Lord, with your right hand and hear me. You You can hear David just pouring out his heart. And then, God has spoken in his holiness sit in this almost every time that we're together. God is the one that speaks to us through his word and through his word in his holiness, his purity, his grace, his love, his mercy, all of the attributes that our incredible God is. This is how he has unveiled and revealed and made known himself and what he has spoken. These are promises that we are to hold on to, and these are promises that David is reminding himself and reminding us and teaching us. What has God said? God said, I will rejoice. I will joy and I will triumph is what the language says. I will divide Shechem. Shechem is a a place where Abraham established an altar when God brought him into the land. So he's talking about the land of Israel. I will measure out the valley of Sukkoth. 
place where Jacob established an altar. Gilead on the east side of the Jordan River, God said, is mine. Manasseh, both sides of the Jordan River, is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head, literally the stronghold. Ephraim, you're my warriors. Judah is my lawgiver. My, my kings are from the tribe of Judah. Moab, Moab is my washpot. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe in Edom to just to totally dominate someone. So God is saying, I will be God of you and you will have the land that I have promised and I will divide that land to my children over the enemies, over Moab and over Edom, over Philistia. Shout in triumph because of me. And again, this, this is what we do in worship. This is what we do in prayer. We are shouting in triumph and in joy because of our creator. And this is what David is teaching us. And this is what he's preaching to himself as he's standing before an army. And he's recognizing God isn't with me in this moment. And if God doesn't go with me, I will not be victorious. In those two phrases in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, the Lord preserved David wherever he went because David was seeking to hold the hands and the heart of his God. Verse 9, who? Who? Who's going to bring you into the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And again, that connection in the very beginning. Lord, you're the one. You rejected us. Restore us. Who, who can lead me, Lord? It's, it's only you, but you've cast us off. And you, O oh God, who did not go out with our armies. You can tell there's a defeat that's been suffered that we don't know about. Verse 11, give us help from trouble. And it's like, give us help from enemies. Come on, God, give me the help I need, please. I'm looking to you. For the help of man is what? This gets back to where I began this morning. Don't ever look to a man or to a woman, to, again, to a doctrine, to a teaching, to commandments of man. Look to your God and your God alone, because man cannot help you. Maybe for a time, maybe for a respite, but there is no salvation in a human being. Your help, what does David say? Through God, we will do valiantly. We will be men and women of valor, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Worship team, come on up. It's really easy and motivational language to say, just trust God. Let go and let God. He'll do it all for you. But isn't that what the Bible tells us? Okay, we, have, we have a snapshot of success in David's life. And everything looks great. But in the midst of all of that success, there was a defeat that came into his life. And it caused a brokenness within him. It caused an alertness. It caused a, God has 
rejected us and cast us off and removed his help from, uh, from me, from us, for a reason. Lord, how have I displeased you? Create in me that clean heart. Lord, see me and know me. If I, if I am unaware of how I am causing offense to you or to your people, Lord, I'm, a, I'm asking for that awareness so that you can cleanse me and so that I can change my thinking and so that I can change my behavior. I don't want to be pressed into some kind of man's system because man's system's not going to fix me. The psychology of the world isn't going to fix me. A drug is not going to fix me. My politics are not going to fix me. My job isn't going to fix me. Lord, the enemies, the trouble that I find myself in, I look at myself in the mirror and I say, I am useless and worthless to do anything about that. But in you, I trust your promise that I will be a man of valor, that I will be a man of victory. And not because I am picking myself up by my own bootstraps, it's because I know your nature and your character and your love and your attention to me and your promise that you will make me to be a man after your own heart. You will cause me to be a fisher of men. You will cause me to be a lover of God and a lover of people. And whatever is standing before me, Lord, if I need to go to war, if I need to be and do justice and righteousness, I can only do it if you do it. I can only do it through you and for you and in your presence. And if I don't, there's no victory and I'm just going to hurt people. So Lord, we hear you. We hear your voice. We hear your truth. Revelation 19 is hard for me, Lord, because we all cry, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to see you and be with you and feast with you. We want you as king. We want your economy and your military and your life and your light. But Lord, my heart always quivers and trembles and breaks. For those who willfully rebel against you, and those who have been blinded by the lies of the devil in this world and even their own flesh. So Lord, we come to you and ask you for help, for your freedom, for your truth, for your victory. We ask that you would cause us to know you and not through some Just little thread, Lord, that we can grasp onto. But Lord, we want to know you in all of your fullness and your truth, your grandeur and your majesty. You're our king. Conquer our enemies and give us peace. We ask this, Lord, as your humble servants. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.